And I'm really glad to have you here as we turn our attention to Revelation 21. If you found it, why don't you stand with me as we read together God's Word. As a reminder, we are one week in to a three-week series in this chapter. We are going to study it verse by verse till the end. This past week, we looked at verses 1 through 8, where, Lord willing, you saw the grace that awaits us. Today, beginning in verse 9, and I'll read down through verse 21, my earnest prayer is that you will now see not only the grace that awaits you, I want you to see today the glory that awaits you in eternity. Look for yourself in Revelation 21, beginning in verse 9. John writes, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and he spoke to me, saying, Come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And so he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain, and there he showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. You see, it had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates were twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east there were three gates, on the north there were three gates, on the south there were three, and even on the west there were three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the apostles of the Lamb." Now, the one who spoke with me, he had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. Now, listen to these measurements. The city lied foursquare, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, and it was 12,000 stadia. I'll come back to that in a moment. Its length and its width and its height, all of which are equal. He also measured its wall, and it was 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also angel's measurement. And the wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. Now, the foundations of the wall of the city, they were adorned with every kind of jewel. Now, look at this list. You probably aren't familiar with many of these. The first was jasper. The second was sapphire. The third was agate. The fourth was emerald. The fifth, onyx. The sixth, carnelian. The seventh, chrysolite. The eighth, beryl. The ninth, topaz. The tenth, chrysoprase. The eleventh, jacinth. And the twelfth, amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was like pure gold, like transparent glass. Whew, my word, I mean, what have we just seen? We're going to spend the next half hour or so, by God's grace, unfolding what John just beheld. Why don't you join me as we pray and ask God to help me cut it straight for you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I'm asking now that you would come and that you would grant all of us in this room, myself included, a glimpse of the glory that awaits us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, how would you describe the otherwise indescribable? Talk about something in this world that is hard to describe for example, a sunset. How do you describe the splendor of a sunset? It kind of defies description, does it not? Try as you might, really it's going to be one of those things where you got to see it to understand it. Or consider the majesty of the mountains. 
I remember the first time I saw the Rockies, I couldn't believe what I was seeing, especially because I was from Oklahoma, where we have hills, and those hills are like three feet high. Oh my word, the majesty, I couldn't describe it. Or consider the wonder of the wind and the waves. How would you describe the ocean to someone who's never seen it? How could you do that? How could you describe the wind to a blind person? How can you describe it? It defies description, does it not? How would you define, how would you describe, oh, well, let's say the grandeur of the galaxies? Have you ever looked through a telescope? Have you ever seen those pictures that NASA publishes? How do you describe what you're looking at? It's, it defies description. Or let's bring it closer to home. How would you describe the beauty of your bride or even your little baby? How do you do that? I mean, you can say little things here and there, but it doesn't even come close to capturing what you really mean. You know, there is a word that all of us use every day to describe the otherwise indescribable. It's a word we know it's common, and that word is glory, glorious. You, you use it all the time. We, we use it often to describe great things. For example, you might use it to describe a glorious cup of coffee. I'm sure I've heard John Steg Merton say that several times. <laughs> or you'd use it maybe to describe, oh, like, glorious weather. Don't you love it when you go outside on a crisp morning, the humidity's low, it's like in the 60s, you're like, mmm, this is glorious. Not today. Or maybe you would use that word to describe, well, I don't know, you Panthers fans, you're at the game, they win the winning touchdown, and you're just like, ah, oh, this is glorious. It's a word that you're just grasping for to describe something that just feels wonderful to you. Now, admittedly, that is not a good use of the word. It kind of empties, debases its meaning. We tend to use it more appropriately for not just great things, but greater things. So, for example, you go outside and you see a beautiful landscape the mountains or the ocean I described, and you're like, oh, wow, this is, this is glorious. Or you go to an art museum, and you look at a masterpiece that's a few centuries old. Now listen, I always wondered how people could go stare at those masterpieces for an hour. Have you ever heard that people do that? Now admittedly, I still don't quite understand why they do that, but if you look at it, you'll start to see what, my word, this, there's a reason this is regarded as a masterpiece. This is glorious craftsmanship. It's amazing what I'm beholding. Or just consider from my own story, I'm sure it reflects yours, the first time I held my little girl, and I looked at her, and I looked at her face, and it's like the rest of the world began to grow strangely dim. And as I looked at my little girl, I couldn't help but think, this is glorious. Nobody else may think she's cute. She is the cutest thing I have ever seen. <laughs> Glory. Little wonder, then, that that word we all know and love and use to describe great and greater things, little wonder that that is the word of choice used to describe the greatest thing the world has ever known, the greatest being mind can imagine, God himself. This is the word of choice in the Bible. Again and again and again, God is described as glorious. If you read in your Old Testament, in the original Hebrew, we find that word glory, which is kavod, we find that word 300 some odd times. And every time that word is used, it is talking about the weight of God. And then you flip to the New Testament and you see it in the Greek, the word glory is called doxa, and that word refers to the worth of God. So in other words, the whole Bible describes again and again the weight and the worth of God, and it brings it together in this one word, glory. It sums up who he is. 
If you were to talk of God's love, joy, peace, patience, his kindness, his goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, his self-control, his omniscience, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his justice, his goodness, you name it, one word that could kind of summarize all those attributes into one would be my word, God is glorious. Or it describes not just who God is, in a very real sense it describes who we are. For the Bible is quite clear that you and I were made for God's glory. That's why we exist. And the essence of sin, the Bible says, is us rejecting God's glory. It says we fall short of God's glory. In fact, it goes one step further, and it says we exchange the glory of God for lesser things. We look at God's glory and say, nah, I'll take this, the essence of sin. Consequently, it is also the essence, the summation of God's work. Not just who he is and not just who we are. It sums up what God is doing in this world. Because he looks at sinners like you and I and he is on a project to reclaim his glory. That's the whole story of the Bible, by the way. He made everything. He created the world for his glory. The heavens declare the glory of God. He called Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, who led the Exodus, all the judges, all the kings, all the prophets, every figure in the Old Testament exists and was called so that they, the world may know that there is a God in Israel, so that the world would know that God's glory will cover this world as the waters cover the seas. It's why he sent Jesus, who Hebrews tells us is the image of the invisible God, the radiance of God's glory. It's God's glory in the flesh. In fact, John tells us when Jesus was born, he was born so that God's glory would dwell amongst us. It tells us that Jesus lived 33 years so that we would see the glory of God in his baptism, in his transfiguration, in all of his wonderful miracles. It tells us that Jesus died on a cross so that the Father would be glorified. Jesus literally prays, Father, glorify yourself in my death. And of course, you know this to be true. Jesus was raised from the dead for the glory of God. In fact, Peter tells us he was raised for glory. And of course, the story isn't over. He who is risen and reigning will one day come again. And Revelation 21 and 22 make quite clear that the reason he is going to come again is so that we might fully and finally at last see in full what we have only seen in part. My friends, there is going to come a day when you and I are going to at last see his glory. That is the thrust of this text in my judgment. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 9 and following, is John's attempt to capture the glory he is finally seeing in eternity. It's, it's like he's taken the dictionary and he's just dumping it out grasping at words, trying his darndest to figure out how do I convey to these folks what I'm seeing. For example, when I was engaged to my wife, I tried to convey everything I loved about her in these 31 different love letters leading up to when I proposed her. It was unusually romantic for me. I'm ashamed to admit I'm not really that guy. But I tried really hard. And then my wife, which is per the usual, she typically outdoes me and she never intends to, she uh, had been working simultaneously, so she didn't intentionally one-up me. She, on my wedding day, gave me a notebook, but instead of 31 things she liked about me, she wrote 500, <laughs> which I'm still as amazed as you are that she had 500 things to say. 
Have you ever tried that? Have you ever been grasping for words, trying to just convey in human language the glory of something you're beholding? This is what John is doing here. And he tries, and his best effort is to try to compare the glory of heaven, what he's seeing, to a, to a gemstone. Look with me, if you will, at verse 11. In verse 11, he says that heaven is kind of going to be like this rare, precious stone, like jasper, clear as crystal, which, by the way, jasper, back in the days of the Bible, would have probably been a diamond. So here's what I'm going to do over the next few minutes. I'm going to hold up this diamond for you. You ever looked at a diamond? You ever looked at it? If you had to buy one, you knew there's color and cut and cost and cost and cost and cost. About the only C that mattered to me when I was buying it. But you sold up this jewel, and it's multifaceted. It has many angles. And that's what I want to do today, is I want to hold up the jewel of God's glory. And I'm just going to spin it for you for the next 20 minutes, and I want you to look at it with me. This will feel less application-driven, which is what would, I normally would do. And I'm just going to ask you today to look at the glory that awaits you. And I think if you get a glimpse of this glory that John is showing us, It'll cause you to worship. Look with me, if you will. Firstly, let's spin the jewel. And first off, I want you to see the glory that awaits you. And I want you to see this. Look with me and see his perfect patience, which we notice beginning in verse 9. For in verse 9, what's the first thing John sees when he goes to heaven? John is stepping into glory. And the first thing he sees in verse 9 is the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now, you folks who know your Bibles should instantly know who that is. Who is the bride? It's you and me. The Bible is quite clear. It repeats it again and again that the church, the called out ones of God, the people of God, the saved, the redeemed, are the bride. And the first thing John sees that he describes as radiantly glorious is the bride. Now, that should stun us. Because do you know how the Bible describes the bride? The Bible repeatedly describes the bride as anything but glorious. Describes it as a cheater, as a harlot. Hosea uses even more graphic language. And you know this to be true. I think when you step into glory, the first amazing thing you will see that'll blind you, that'll make you probably get dizzy, so to speak, is you are going to be stunned by the glorious fact that you are even there. You're going to be amazed at his perfect patience, allowing an unfaithful, cheating spouse like you to enter the gates of glory. You're going to stand before him and just be utterly astounded at his perfect patience, that he saw you as a cheating, unfaithful spouse. And what did he do? The scripture is clear. Nevertheless, he chose you. He cleansed you. He cherishes you. He makes a covenant with you. And there is going to come a day where your relationship will be consummated, so to speak, at the great marriage supper of the Lamb. That's Revelation 19, where you will at last, you who were sinners, you will now stand before him blameless. It's astounding. You will glory at the glory of his perfect patience. You will resonate with Paul, who famously said, I am amazed that God saved me. But I think he did it to demonstrate his perfect patience. You are going to echo Paul. You're going to echo Peter who said again and again, oh, God is patient with sinners. You are going to echo Noah who was just amazed at the patience of God on all those years waiting for the flood. You are going to enter the gates of glory one day and the first thing that will blind you is the glory of his perfect patience towards you. 
But once you kind of adjust, once your eyes start to settle, if they ever can, to the glory of the sheer fact that you're there, the next thing I think you'll notice that John notices is you're going to look around, and you're going to notice who all is around you, and they're not going to look anything like what they used to look like. For secondly, I want you to see, you're not just going to see the glory of his perfect patience. You're going to see, secondly, the glory of his perfect power. Look with me, if you will, beginning in verse 10. It says, he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and there he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. Now, if you were here last week, you may recall that I was quite clear that when you see the phrase, holy city of Jerusalem, remember he is talking about one and the same time, both a people and a place. For example, I could say Charlotte is a beautiful city. That's talking about the place. But I can also say Charlotte is a wicked city city, and that is referring to the people, of course. So too, when he describes the holy city Jerusalem, he is talking about a wonderfully recreated place, a world, heaven. Heaven is literally going to come to earth. You are going to be amazed that everything is brand new, but I think what will amaze you more than that is that the holy city is filled with a holy people. You're going to look around, and you are not going to see the husband you knew. You are not going to see the child you knew, the neighbor you knew, the church member on the pew you knew, you are going to be astounded at the change wrought by the power of God in heaven. You will be amazed that the city you now dwell in is, well, he tells us, it's a holy city. Just consider with me that you are going to spend forever doing in heaven what you were made to do. You were made to radiate the glory of God's holiness. By the way, the Bible says that we were made in the image of God, which means we were made to bear his image. And we haven't done that as sinners, but one day we are going to be amazed that we get to finally do what we were made to do. Just consider with me the glory of this. Do you realize there is going to come a day where you are no longer going to sin? You are no longer going to want to sin? And you are no longer going to want to want to sin? It will be free at last. You are going to experience the glory of his perfect power at work in you. He who by his power saved you, that's justification. He who by his power is changing you, that's sanctification. That same God's power will one day perfect you. That is called glorification in the Bible. We are going to be changed at last and blinded by the glory that we're there his perfect patience. We're going to be blinded by the glory of how, who else is there, his perfect power. And then thirdly, we are going to be blinded by the surroundings. We are going to be blinded by what I am describing as his perfect peace. Turn with me, if you will, to verse 12. And I want to show you this. This is strange imagery, so you'll have to track with me closely. Beginning in verse 12, he describes the surroundings. He says it had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates were 12 angels. Now, if you know your Bible, where else have we seen an angel guarding the entrance to some place? You may recall, as you should, the Garden of Eden. For when sin entered the world, God sent an angel with a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life, separating us from God and His presence. We have been moved out forever, but there is going to come a day where no longer will we be separated. Do you notice the angel is standing by an open gate? These gates are coming in. You can come right past the angel at this point. In other words, what has been demonstrated for us is there is going to come a day where we are going to experience perfect, lasting peace with God. 
No longer will sin separate us. No longer will we see through a glass dimly. We're going to be behold him before him. We will be able to enter and exit at perfect peace, both with God and with his people. For it says, on those gates is inscribed all the tribes of Israel. And there's gates on every side, inferring, as most scholars would suggest, that all the redeemed peoples of the world can come and go, so to speak. In other words, no more racial division, no more religious division, no more disunity, no more discord, no more disagreement, no more dissonance, all gone. There is going to be perfect, lasting peace. And notice what kind of peace this is built on. Have you ever noticed in our world everybody wants peace? You watch a beauty pageant, everybody wants world peace. You will listen to any politician, he wants world peace, and they're never really going to get it. They're trying as they might to build a utopia. It doesn't last. Have you ever noticed people that try to water things down for peace? They're like those <clears throat> uh, prophets of old who cried, peace, peace, when there <clears throat> is no peace. This peace is real, genuine, lasting peace, for it is built on the foundation of the apostles, which means it is built on truth. There will be no more compromising to build this broken peace. This is not a peace treaty. This is true peace. No more enemies. We will be at perfect peace with God and one another, built on the truth of God's Word. Oh, just see the glory of this. Do you see it? We're going to see the glory of His patience. You're going to see the glory of his power at work in everybody around you. You're going to see the glory of his peace. The whole environment will be marked by peace. But there is one thing your eye will fixate on. You will not go to heaven looking for your husband, for your child, for your mother and father who have gone before you. For I suspect your eyes will be drawn to the center of glory. You will be drawn to, fourthly, his perfect presence, which I see beginning in verse 15. Now, follow me, because in verse 15 and following, it, you may not immediately see this. You've got to see the illusion at play. Verse 15, he describes the measurements of the city, which are just astronomical. He said, the city lied foursquare, and its length was the same as its width, and that length was 12,000 stadia. Now, do you know what a stadia is? It's an ancient measurement for 607 feet, which means 12,000 stadia is 1,400 miles, which means that this city, if you render it literally, and by the way, you can. I wouldn't be shocked if it were, because I think everything in heaven will astound us. But if that were the case, it would be roughly the distance from Charlotte to Denver, Colorado, Lengthwise, it would be from Charlotte up to the Hudson Bay of Canada. That's a long way. Now, here's where the kicker is. This is what makes me think, I don't know if we should render this literally. The height, have you ever conceived of what 1,400 miles high would be? That is roughly 254 Mount Everests stacked on top of each other. Now, if that doesn't, if you can't picture that, let's picture together the tallest point in our fair city the Bank of America Tower in Uptown. Do you want to know how high this is? It would be taking that tower and stacking 8,486 of them on top of each other. That's the height of this city. Now, I will not say, thus saith the Lord, this is very clearly just figurative. It very well may be literal. But I would submit to you, as most scholars would, that at the very least, this should drive us to conclude that what he is measuring is a picture of the immense presence of God. Now, here's why. That cubic shape, same length, same width, same height, that cubic shape is repeated throughout the Bible. 
And every time it is, it refers to the temple, indeed the holy of holies. Kings tells us it is the uh, measurements of the inner sanctuary. Exodus tells us it is the measurements of the holy of holies. And I think the illusion is, in essence, heaven will be one great holy of holies. Now, if you forgot, the holy of holies was the place in the temple or tabernacle where no man, woman, or child could enter lest they die. There was but one man, the high priest, who went once a year into this temple after many, many sacrifices, and they would tie a rope around his leg lest he die in the presence of a holy God, and they could drag him out. You don't enter the holy of holies. When Jesus came, what did he do? He ripped the veil, praise be to God, he tore that veil where now we can approach his throne of grace with confidence. That is good news for sinners like you and I, but we still don't see him, do we? We see through a glass dimly. This day we are still walking by faith, not by sight. We know we have access to him, but there is going to come a day where we are going to at last see him. We are going to stand in his presence, no longer separated by an angel with a flaming sword. We will be welcomed into the Holy of Holies by an angel. We will come before him in his presence in this great cosmic Holy of Holies, and we will be astounded by the fact that we are beholding the maker and creator of all things face to face. And in that moment, when you at last behold your Father, when you stand in his presence, I trust all of your fears will melt. All of your insecurities, your doubts, all that is hanging and clinging to you this moment will vanquish. It's like when I go to my child's Sunday school room, my little boy, a year old, I looked in the window once and he was scared. Who knows why? He probably hurt some kid and got in trouble. <laughs> and the minute I opened that door and he saw his daddy's face, do you want to know what happened? All the fear melted away. And with a big old grin, he comes toddling over to me and reaches up his arms real high and grabs him and all is well in the world. So too, there is going to come a day where all of your fears, all of your anxieties, all of your sickness, everything about you that is weighing you down will melt away when you stand in the presence of your maker and behold the glory of his presence, the glory of his patience, the glory of his power, the glory of his peace. You are going to stand in the presence of glory. Now when you do, and you fixate your mind and your heart on your maker as you stand in his presence, I submit that we will spend eternity studying what I see in verses 18 through 20 as fourth, uh, fifthly, we are going to see his perfect purity, for lack of a better word. In verses 18 through 20, you see this description of all these jewels. It's probably the part that confuses you the most. Now listen, I read probably 13 different commentaries on this, and there were 13 different interpretations. <laughs> Nobody really knows what to do with this. But there was one great common denominator. That theme that almost every scholar agreed upon that has been my read for years is that these jewels are displaying for us the matchless, perfect purity of our God that we are going to see. You're going to spend eternity studying His purity. His purity, you could say, is the essence of his presence. Now, let me show you why I make that claim, why I believe all these jewels represent the uh, purity of God. On the one hand, it is showing us, I believe, the purity 
of God's beauty. For all of these gemstones paint for us basically a portrait of all the colors of the world, a portrait of the rainbow, so to speak. Let me just read through it, and I'll give you the colors as we read down. You look at jasper. That's a diamond. It's clear. And a sapphire, that's a blue gemstone. An agate, that's kind of a striped gemstone. Emerald, as you well know, that's a green stone. Onyx is a black, dark stone. Carnelian, that's an orange stone. Chrysolite, I had never heard of it till I read the Bible years ago, that's a yellow stone, whereas beryl, that's kind of this darkish stone. Topaz is a yellow-green stone. Chrysoprase, I had never heard of that till I read the Bible, that is a green stone as well. And jacinth, that's an orange, kind of reddish-orange stone. And lastly, amethyst, that's a purple stone. In other words, all the colors of the rainbow are represented there, I believe, typifying picturing, imaging for us the beautiful color of God. Heaven will not be monochromatic. There is going to come a day where we are going to behold perfect beauty. That's why you should like beauty. We should like the artistry of people. We should love the beauty of God's creation. God is an artist, and we will experience the utter purity of pure beauty one day. These colors surely represent our God of beauty, but they also infer, I believe, the purity of God's holiness for If you know your Bible well, you would know that these 12 stones are the 12 stones, for the most part, that we find on the breastplate of the high priest, as described in the book of Exodus. He put a breastplate on with these 12 gemstones that he wore with the names of the tribes inscribed upon them as he entered into the Holy of Holies, typifying, picturing for us the purity of God, God's ability to do what we cannot make us holy. So too, these gemstones should remind us that we are going to behold not only the purity of His beauty, we'll see the purity of His holiness, and it will be paradise at last. For there is one other place in the Bible we see these stones. Did you know these stones are found for the most part in the Garden of Eden? Ezekiel tells us this. You can mark in your margin Ezekiel 28 and verse 13. I don't have time to read it, but you can go study where he tells us describing the primordial Garden of Eden where these stones were described as a part of the beauty of that paradise. We are, in other words, going to come before our Maker and enjoy the purity of His beauty, of His holiness, of His paradise, and the wonderful, amazing, perplexing thing about it is that that very purity of God that we are going to behold will in a very real sense adorn us. You realize these jewels, so to speak, will be slung around your neck, for you will come into the gates of glory adorned like a bride, the Bible says. You are going to be beautiful, though you and I both know we're not for our sin. We will stand before Him as a beautiful bride, We will come before Him holy. How could that possibly be? How could I stand before God holy and blameless? I know I'm not. How could I come before Him adorned, not just in beauty, but in pure holiness? How could I come before God and enjoy His paradise like Adam and Eve when I know I'm a sinner? How? How? Because unlike Adam and Eve of old, when we enter these gates of glory, why can we pass the angel? When we enter these gates of glory, why can we stand before His presence? For on that day, you and I will be robed, as it were, in the pure righteousness of Christ. We will be a living embodiment of Isaiah's prophecy that there will come a day when we will be washed white as snow, though our sins are scarlet. 
We are going to be a living testimony to John's word to us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We will be living proof of the book of Revelation, which says there is going to come a day where our robes will be washed white in the blood of the Lamb. That doesn't make any sense. How is blood going to wash us white? Behold the pure, glorious wonder of the blood of Jesus. We will stand before His presence blameless and with great joy. Why? Because of Jesus. Be amazed, my friends, at the glory of His purity, the glory of His presence, the glory of His peace, of His power, of His patience. But I would be remiss if I concluded this sermon without drawing your attention Sixth and finally, to one last stone I left on the table, one last gemstone, so to speak, that I have not addressed, which you can find in verse 21. Notice the gates. It defies understanding, considering how high these walls are. They're 1,400, uh, that's, I mean, that's a big old wall, and there is a gate that is made of a what? What does verse 21 say? Pearl. What is the difference, my friends, between a pearl and all other gemstones? A pearl is the only stone made by a living creature. All other stones are presumably the product of geological forces, but a pearl, unlike these other stones, is the product of an oyster that gets some sort of impurity, some sort of irritant, something in it that it doesn't want. And the pearl the oyster, I should say, responds to the suffering, to the irritant, by encapsulating it with a pearl, which grows until it's harvested. Now, several scholars, ranging from John MacArthur to W.A. Criswell, all agree that this imagery of the pearly gate through which we will enter glory ought to draw our minds to this wonderful, profound truth that in the same way an oyster responds to this suffering with a pearl, so too God's great response to sin entering His world is the pearl of a great price. Matthew 13, Jesus Himself. Jesus is the response to sin. Jesus is the gate, John tells us. He is the narrow gate through which we can enter. Jesus is the only way to glory. You cannot get to the God. No man comes to the Father but through me, the Lord says. Jesus is the pearly gate through which we will enter. So may I, may I submit to you, I should say, this glorious truth. We're not just going to see his, his glorious, perfect patience. We're not just going to behold the glory of His perfect peace, of His perfect power, of His perfect presence, of His perfect purity. Forevermore, we are going to enter those pearly gates and we are going to behold the glory of His final perfect provision for us through Jesus. Every time you walk through the gates of heaven, you will look up and see the pearl of great price and remember what Jesus has done for you. Oh, do you see His glory today? I have held up this diamond the last 30 minutes, and I've just spun it for you. I've asked you just to look at it. I've showed you six different sides. And I wonder, have you seen it? This day, you in the balcony, have you seen it? 
Have you seen the glory of his perfect patience? If you haven't, I want you to know that the God who saved me can save you. The God who has been so patient with me, his patience is for you. He is calling you this day to come to him. Do you see this day the glory of his perfect power? The God who changed me, if you only knew the darkness of my heart, you'd know what a work he's done in me. That same power is offered you. He can change you. Have you seen this day the glory of his perfect, oh my friends, his perfect peace? You who are at war within you, there is so much uncertainty, doubt, discouragement, depression, despair. God is calling you this day to come to him and he will grant you a peace that surpasses understanding. The peace I know you can have, just look to him. Have you seen this day the glory, the glory of his perfect presence? You can stand before him one day blameless with great joy, and that's thanks to Jesus. I will stand before God on the same ground that you will stand. We will both stand side by side. Pharisees, drug addicts, uh, people who have slept with the wrong person, people who have eaten the wrong thing, who have done the wrong thing, said the wrong thing, people who have dark, wicked hearts, we will all stand before God one day in his presence and we will all plead the same thing, the blood of Jesus which robes us, which adorns us. We will stand and plead Jesus and Jesus alone. We will see the glory of his purity and stand amazed that that purity, that righteousness has been credited to us. We will fall on our faces, throw our crowns at his feet, and cry, oh God, you have been too good, too gracious, too merciful. We will cry forever this one song with all the angels in heaven. We will cry glory to his great perfect provision in Jesus Christ. Oh, the pearl of great price, the only gate through which we can enter. We will glory that Jesus made all of this possible. There's going to come a day, my friends, where we are going to fully and finally see this glory at last. And I think when that great day comes, when we stand in his presence, there's probably going to be but one word on our lips. Glory. Why don't you join me as we pray? And I'm going to ask God. I'm going to ask our good God to come and show you anew his glory. We've seen a glimpse of it in Revelation 21, beginning in verse 9. Today you can taste it. You can see it more fully if you just enter through the narrow gate. Jesus, the pearl of great price, he is calling you this day to come. His patience is towards you. His power is perfected in you. His peace he offers you. His presence he bids you to enter. His purity he gives you. Thanks to Jesus, his great provision to us. So this day, as John leads us in a song, I want to invite you to just come. There are pastors down here at the front who would love to show you the glory they've seen, who would love to pray with you. Please come pray with them. All of us ought to respond one way or another. Let's all cry out with one accord and sing glory, glory, glory to our great God, whom we will one day see in full. Father in heaven, that is the cry of our hearts. Glory to you. 
I pray that you would do what I cannot, and that is open eyes in this room to behold anew the matchless glory of your perfect patience, power, peace, presence, purity, and provision in Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Why don't you stand to your feet? Together, let's cry out in one accord. Glory.